This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Karen Swallow Pryor, welcome back to Viral Jesus. Many people use the word calling when what they really mean is passion or desire. And so they'll say, I have a calling to do X, Y, and Z. And what they really mean is they have a passion or desire that's internal. Calling is external. A calling comes from outside the house, so to speak. It comes from outside. And so just because we desire to do something doesn't mean that other people are going to call us to do that for them in their lives. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. A recent study revealed while more than half of the U.S. population wants to write a book, only 15% have actually started the writing process, and a mere 6% have gotten halfway through. Our guest today is someone who not only writes books, but she also has had our number one downloaded episode of last season called The Work is the Platform. And if you haven't listened to that one yet, you may want to hear that conversation because we heard your DMs, we got your comments. And today we get to continue that conversation with the one and only Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen Swallow Pryor is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She is the author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, and has contributed to numerous other books. Her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. So first of all, we had you on last season. You were the most downloaded episode to date. And I personally got messages from people asking me to have you back on to continue our conversation. And here is what I love about you. You are zero gimmicks, right? Like you are so authentic to your craft and your lane. And in a world where I think the church gets a lot of criticism for the celebrity pastor on big stages and fog machines. You're kind of like the anti that. And I feel like people's reaction and support of you shows that still exists in the church and that people are craving humble servant leadership. For an example, Karen, I went to your website, karenswallowprior.com, and you don't even have your social media handles listed on your own <laughs> website. Do you know that? Um, no. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to your website and I was like, this actually is exactly what we're going to talk about with our conversation, because this is what I'm saying about you. What you do have is a link to your published articles, but no social media handles, which absolutely fascinated me. And I think speaks to the exact conversation that we're hopefully going to really dig into today about what it means to just do your work and focus on doing your work. So I just want to say to you and to our listeners, I hope people keep supporting Karen Swallow Pryor and all the Karen Swallow Priors in the world and keep buying your books and download your podcast, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But I like to open every interview by reading something that my guest has posted online. And for you, I'm going to reread what sparked our first conversation last season. So here's what you posted on Twitter. You said, 
Lately, I see so much angst bordering on desperation from writers and aspiring writers about building platform more than actual writing. As someone who was 47 and had a PhD before writing my first non-academic book, I'm really wondering what writers feel is at stake for them. And so then you have this poll where people can click their choice. And so the first one says personal validation, which received 25% of the vote. Then it says income, and that received 22% of the vote. Career, which received 26% of the vote. So one of the top answers. And influence, which received 26% of the vote. You tweeted below that. You said, I know publishers require platform and they should. It's their money being put up. My question is, what is at stake for those who are desperately trying to get published? So have people reached out to you about this particular conversation since we did the podcast? So many people, I'll tell you, who started listening to other episodes of the podcast came simply because of your episode. They said, I listened to that Karen Swallow Pryor episode and I had to hear more, which, hey, we want to have you back then. (laughs) So glad that you're here. But what kind of feedback have you gotten and has anything changed in, in that conversation for you? Yeah, I did get a considerable amount of feedback. You know, I get emails, but even just things on social media where it resonated with people. It seems like it made people think about it a little bit differently. And so that, you know, that really is my goal because so much of our thinking on writing and publishing and platform is created by myth and even the publishing industry, which, you know, has a lot to gain maybe just by, you know, sort of the spaghetti method, throwing all the writers on the wall and seeing which ones stick. And we just have to be thoughtful about that, about what we're losing in our character and our lives and our values when we just strive for this thing and we don't even know what it is, really. I think one of the reasons this conversation resonates with people is because we've all... I think it hurts because it's true, Hmm. right? And it causes some deep reflection as to, okay, well, where is this motivation coming from? Where is this deep angst coming from? What kind of answers are you hearing to that question? This isn't something that I've invented or come up with on my own out of the air. There has been... It feels like yours, Karen. Right now (laughs) on today's show, this is about you. You created this conversation. Okay. okay. Well, I read a lot. So I'll I'll just point to to some of the books and some of the thinkers that have, have helped me develop my ideas about this. One is Kate Bowler wrote a book a few years ago. Mm. It was A Preacher's Wife is what it was called. But it was really about women who are denied traditional sort of sanctioned forms of authority. And so they try to find authority through other means and celebrity is one of them. I think of Tish Harrison Warren, who wrote an article a few years ago, again, at Christianity Today about authority in the blogosphere. And again, the blogosphere being sort of an alternative form of authority. So yeah, so there are people who've been talking about this, but I will answer it kind of from my perspective. And I do see, because so many of the writers or, you know, the aspiring writers that I see who are are trying to build platforms, many of them are mothers who are at home mothering full time, which I think is the most important thing to do. And I think that our culture does diminish the importance of that in many ways, not necessarily directly, maybe indirectly, and maybe just even what we all see out there on on social media that isn't reflective of reality makes many people, not just women, it's like they see the top layer of the rug, but they don't see the underneath where, Mm. where the weaving is. And so life 
you know, there's a distorted presentation of what life is in many respects, but I think it hits hard on women who feel undervalued and diminished maybe because they didn't complete their education or they're not out Mm -hmm. in the workforce and they are at home and maybe they're lonely and COVID has exacerbated that. And what I want to say is like, that's a lie and no woman or man gets to have it all. And what I do for, I'll just speak for me, what I do and what I've accomplished is possible only because I wasn't able to have children. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can forget what we have because we're focused on what we don't have. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a lot in our culture that encourages that, but we just kind of need to step back and say, we aren't going to have it all. And we need to not, you know, carry these sort of romantic illusions about what life could be or would be and just like embrace the gifts that have been given to us and use them. I think some people may have heard your tweet. Felt is the word. Felt like you said, what makes you think you're important enough to have a book? But what you're really saying is, why do we think that books are the only way to be important? You just... Put it all so simply and clearly in a few words, what I just said for like five minutes. So yes, exactly. But I think that's really a crucial thing for people to hear. So I work with young people as you do too, but I work with so many young students. And what I would say is if it's not publishing, there is this deep need, I would attribute it to social media to Mm -hmm. feel like your life is impactful. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't look like around me, on social media or through, you know, I'm not getting a scholarship from Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, then my life isn't meaningful and my life isn't impactful. So I think this message is really important. How would you tailor it to this next generation of college students right now? Wow. Yeah. I I really hope and believe that they can kind of learn from maybe our mistakes and our excesses. Everything happens in waves. And I do think that maybe social media and the social media world that it constructs will subside. Maybe we will start to see how it distorts. I mean, think, for example, here's a here's an analogy. You know, I'm a child of the 80s, right? So I I was a teenager in the 80s when the bigger the hair and the bluer the eyeshadow, the better. And we look at that and we're like, whoa, <laughs> that's a little <laughs> bit much, right? Um, I love that young people today just, you know, there's just a more natural look and, and we, we're yeah, more, yeah. you know, we, we like everyone in their diversity and we don't, you know, I think we've made some advances that way. And maybe young people today will look back at the distortions and the excesses and the unreality yeah. of social media and say, wow, that's that's not real. That's not real life. And, and and it's a great tool. And I'm so thankful for it. But when that tool becomes something that becomes an end rather than a means and kind of replaces reality, then it becomes problematic. That's why we're here talking about that. So you know, we're living through this saturation, point of saturation, I think, with social media and, and young people, I think, are watching and observing and maybe the pandemic also will, you know, they're the ones coming of age during this pandemic. And, and my hope for them would be that they would, uh, and we all would just really become grounded and realize yeah. just how, yeah, how important are the relationships we can count on one hand, much more important they are than, you know, 10 or 50,000 social media followers. Has the pandemic done that for you? It, it really has done that for me. It has I, for I me mean, too. yes, because I've had to change the structure of my life to protect the few people that I'm in physical 
you know, habitation with who are vulnerable. My my mm-hmm. husband, who's a school teacher, and my elderly parents. And so mm-hmm. I've oriented my entire life around, you know, trying to minimize any risk to them because I want them to be all to be around for a long time. And this, you know, maybe it's going to take a few years. We were hoping it was a few months. Maybe it'll take a few years, but this pandemic will subside. And I don't want to look back and say, wow, if I had just been a little more patient, maybe this Mm. disastrous thing wouldn't have happened, which is happening to so many people. Okay, the connection to what I'm hearing of even what you just said is kind of indicative of our entire culture. Even in the conversation we're having, that word patience. We can't wait for anything, not for my achievement, not for a literal pandemic to like (laughs) slow down so I can go back to my quote unquote normal life. I can't wait to finish school. So you know what I mean? If things aren't happening Mm -hmm. quickly, we just feel like, well, then it's not worth the work. What would you say to somebody with that mindset? Well, I would point back to what you just quoted for me, like, well, don't come to me because I was 47 years old before I wrote my own book and I got a PhD and it took me a long, long time. And I feel like that strong foundation is what I have now. And so it's built on, you know, something that's solid. And that's the only way I know. And and I wouldn't have it any other way. And Lord willing, life is long. And to go and build things more slowly means that that foundation will be stronger in the long run. I mean, I'm not good with the sports and athletic metaphors, but I think if you work for a long time over on strengthening and lifting weights, you're going to be way better off than if you just pump steroids for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a Enneagram 3, and I can remember having a conversation, for those who don't know, Enneagram 3s are achievers, right? So I totally resonate with this (laughs) entire conversation. Um, And I remember talking to my mentor one day who was a spiritual advisor for George Bush and and Bill Clinton, actually. And he was kind of hearing the angst that you're hearing (laughs) in my voice. And he said something that changed my life. He said, Heather, what if what if you don't need more talent? What if that's not what God's waiting on? What if what he's waiting on for you is experience? And mm-hmm. experience can never be rushed. And that kind of reoriented me to say, I need to submit myself to the process that God has over my life. Do you feel like there was a process that God had over your life that... Did you ever have the angst actually, Karen? Or was it just not <laughs> even there for you? You didn't care. <laughs> Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question. First, I want to say that was really wise wisdom. You, you He's chose a very wise. Yes. And, you know, and I would say I probably did not have angst. Uh, and that's partly is my personality. But I also, you know, I do want to say I am so thankful that I did grow up before the age of social media. I really do think that it affects all of us some more than others, again, with our different personalities. So I just loved school. I kept going to school. Their social media wasn't a part of it. I just studied and became a professor. And then social media exploded in the blogosphere. I had wanted to be a writer. I wasn't in a hurry, but I had done some writing. And so I was able to you know, write it at that time when I'd already been a professor for a number of years and blogs were coming out and online publications, then it was kind of like perfect timing for me to be able to use that experience and the skills that I had gained and and build a platform in that area. But I already had the foundation, you know, so I don't want to take credit. It's like a providence of God that I was able to do all that before the age of social media. You say publishers should require a platform. Talk to me about that belief. Yeah, I mean... 
as I said, the, you know, publishers are investing money, whether, you, you know, it may be an advanced, large or small, but it also even beyond that, it is like the editing services, the actual right. publishing of the physical book and the marketing. So whatever small or large amount it is, they need to they need to have trust in you. Now, when I say a publisher should acquire or platform, when I say platform, I don't even mean just the number of social media followers, although it can be that. I mean proven evidence of mm. authority and expertise and experience, right? And so they should be able to know that you can do what you're promising to do and that people, enough people will trust you or want to hear what you say so that they can get a return on their investment. And there are all kinds of publishers. There are ones who are smaller, so they will invest less. So the return doesn't need to be as large. My first book was published by a very small independent publisher that most people haven't heard of. And that book has just done really, it's exceeded all of my expectations for me and oh, the wow. publisher. And so again, even that was a process. And then the next publisher was a little bit bigger. And the one after that was my dream publisher. Daniel Darling responded to your tweet and he says this, I can't speak for others, but I've always enjoyed creating stuff. I like putting words together. I like using my gifts to serve the body of Christ in a small way. And here's what you responded. You said, and that shows so much, Dan, truly. I think that's partly why you are able to hold it so loosely. And that's what I wish more could do. The angst is palpable everywhere. Can you talk to us about what you mean by you want more of us to be able to hold it loosely? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I gave a talk recently about calling and this is part of the conversation because many people use the word calling when what they really mean is passion or desire. And so they'll say, I have a calling to do X, Y, and Z. And what they really mean is they have a passion or desire that's internal. Calling is external. Mm. A calling comes from outside the house, so to speak. It comes from outside. And so just because we desire to do something doesn't mean that other people are going to call us to do that for them in their lives. So mm -hmm. I have a desire to run and I do that most days. No one's going to pay me to run. No one's going to want to see me run. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not that good. In, in high school, you know, I, I did do pretty well on the cross country team, you know, fairly decently. So I was wanted. I was called there, but not anymore in my life. So I have a passion and desire to do it, but it has nothing to do with other people asking me to do mm. that. And so if you have a passion and desire to write or do anything creative, you're going to do that regardless of the affirmation or calling from outside. Now, that is very nice when it comes and it, it spurs us on even further. But the fact that I have a passion or desire does not necessitate that someone else is going to want me to fill that role for them in, in their lives. And so what I was saying to Dan is you can just tell from his books and from his character and the way he holds his writing that he's doing this because he has a desire to do it and a passion to do it. And then, you know, others are calling him along with that. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19 and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. 
When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. Don't be afraid to hurt my feelings, okay? But I think what complicates this idea of calling is Christianity, right? Because I can know for myself, I remember, I mean, I remember being in third grade and knowing and saying to my class, I'm going to be an author. I knew it. I felt called. Nobody had confirmed it for me at that point, besides my dad, but I don't know if he counts. Nobody else had confirmed it for me. So what would you say to little Heather, 18 years old, I would sit in college classes and just not even pay attention to the lecturer because I'm sitting here writing, working on my manuscript that nobody will ever read now. But I wrote so many books in high school and in college and I felt called by God. It did get confirmed later, right? But let's go before that. I'm 19 years old. Nobody has confirmed it for me by the age of 19. What would you say to me? You're Dr. Pryor. You're my professor. I feel called. What do you say? Well, another part of this that I kind of left out, I would say you have a passion and desire to be a writer. And God gives us, when he creates us, he creates, you know, I don't know all the theological terms. So, I, you know, please. Me you know, either. So yeah, I won't yeah, know. Yeah. yeah. If so, you're wrong, so he, I won't know. He creates <laughs> us uniquely. And so I believe that includes our passions and our desires. And he also creates each one of us and puts us in certain circumstances and conditions. So, so for example, neither you nor I could be a writer or even we wouldn't even have the desire to be a writer if we had been born in some preliterate society, part of the oral culture where they didn't even have books, right? So 500 years ago, people didn't dream of being writers because they couldn't read and we didn't have books. And so God created us and put us in a time and place where that is something that we can do. So that's part of his creation of us and his sovereignty in creating us. And I would say calling is different because it does come from outside. You probably did receive other affirmations along the way, not just from your father. You probably got A's on some of those writing assignments. You probably had a teacher who said, you're a good writer, Heather, you should do this. So you might not even remember those, but my guess is you probably did receive affirmations that help to cultivate that, that desire even more. Have you read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers? I haven't read it. I've, you know, I'm familiar with the 10,000 hours thing. Yeah. In Outliers, what he talks about essentially is that there are none. Like we always look at people who do great big things right, and we say, well, right. how did they get there? And he says, so many different people have passions and gifts and talents that you'll never see because they didn't get the opportunity. And some people right. get, they're, they're ready when the opportunity comes and it gives them this right. great big, what we would now call platform. But how many people right. never got to write the book, not because they weren't super talented and not because it wasn't so important and right. they didn't have the passion, but because they never got the deal. Right. And I would say that's part of the external aspect of calling yeah. that, that, you know, comes from outside. It's an, a synergy. There's an interplay. We can create those conditions. You know, uh, as someone who wants to be an actor uh, is 
likely going to move to, you know, New York right. or, or Los Angeles in order to be in the conditions where that calling is more likely to happen. So it's not like it is though they're completely separated, but I think in our minds understanding that they are separated, like that my passion and my desire does not automatically result in a call. Yeah. But that's where the angst for platform building comes in. Because if you have a platform, then, you know, like if you think of a physical platform that you're standing up on above the crowd so people can yeah. see you, then yeah. that is actually makes it more likely that you might get a call. So, you know, we can affect that. Again, I think keeping that understanding of the difference between an internal desire and an external calling is helpful. Helpful. And also that's probably the part of the conversation that so many people struggle to accept is because we want those two things to be the same. And I think that's part of what makes it painful is because that internal desire is so strong, it is very difficult to believe that it's not external, right? Because it's so strong on the inside. And then we always hear the stories of, or you see the movies or that idea in American culture of like, they just believed it and they made it happen for themselves. They fought until it finally happened. And I think that's probably like the romantic idea in a lot of content creators. Yeah, that is definitely a capital R romantic idea, you know, that you can do anything. And that's just simply not true. And going back to what we said in the beginning, that doesn't mean that you're not important. Exactly, exactly. How and do we do I away mean, with that? How do we do away with this idea that my my writing isn't important or my gifts aren't important unless they're seen by everybody? I mean, the, our culture pushes that message so strongly. We just have to be intentional about resisting it. I mean, for me, you know, my knowledge of history and culture just shows me it's not so. I mean, again, if we think about all the people who've existed on the earth in all of human history and how important and significant they were and all the rest who can, will continue to be but didn't have social media, didn't have you know 10,000 followers, didn't have a book contract, even in our culture where it seems like so many people today have those things, the vast majority don't. So this is what I'm thinking. What can people do? And you may not have an answer for this and it's okay. What can people do with, let's say their gift is writing, right? What can people do with that without a book deal that still feels meaningful and is going to matter to the people who they share it with? Any ideas? Well, the beautiful thing about this digital age is that it is very easy to, first of all, just to, to write. I'm so mm -hmm. glad that, you know, I have a word processor. We don't even use that word anymore, but I have Word and a, and a laptop uh, that I can, can write more easily in and can research on the internet. And so it's easier in many ways for people to produce writing, to improve on writing and to put up a blog or to share even with a small audience and get feedback. Again, that's part of where the external calling comes from. I mean, you can put yourself out there and as you get response and, uh, and affirmation and people who more and more want to hear what you have to say, then you know whether that develops into a calling or not. And if it doesn't, but you still get to practice that thing that you love, then you can still do that. And so that's another distinction we need to make is, do you love to write or do you love to be read? Wow, that is really good. Because why else? Why doesn't it matter? I'm talking to the listener now. If you were to say to 10 people, so many people are so discouraged right now. If you were to say, hey, like, would you like me to send you a text message on 
I send a text message in a group on Friday nights to people who want it. And I have actually capped that. I don't advertise it because I only want the people that can fit in this group. And I just do that to do it. Right? It's not about trying to get it re-screenshot and then post Mm -hmm. it. It's like, I just want to serve people because I know how hard a week can be. What can you, listener, do to serve people in your gifts? And it doesn't have to be this major consumption. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, right? Like you just serve to serve and it's impacting somebody. And why isn't that enough, you know? Right, right. It's not, you know, again, we we have this distorted image of what it means to be enough from social media and we just have to resist it. I mean, one question I get a lot from people is, you know, about finding ways to improve their writing and to hone their craft. Well, very easily a few, you know, five people who want to be writers could get a writing group together and help one another hone their craft. So there's like two birds with one stone. You're writing and you're honing your craft and you're helping others do that as well. And that's something, again, that technology makes possible. You have a new podcast called Jane and Jesus. Please talk to us about that. Oh, thank you so much for asking. I have to say, first of all, that doing a podcast is probably the thing most outside my comfort zone that I've done in many, many years, um, maybe my whole adult life. So it's been kind of a fun challenge. I've had, you know, to make myself accept this challenge when I was invited by this soul shop, this podcast family to do this, this podcast is, you know, about Jane Austen. And the first season we're in the middle of right now is focusing on pride and prejudice. And we take a character each episode and I bring on a guest who I think will have some particular insight into this character. And we just talk and, you know, I don't think you have to no Jane Austen or even no Pride and Prejudice to appreciate what my amazing guests have to bring to bear on basically human psychology, the human Mm. condition. You know, I say at the beginning of each show that it's a show where we talk about all things Jane Austen and I talk a little bit about Jesus because most (laughs) of my guests aren't even Christians. Oh, wow. So, you know, I see a lot of Christ and a lot of Christian theology in Jane Austen because she was a Christian, but so many people love her and and have so much to say about her that aren't even necessarily Christians. So I have a whole range of people on to just talk about what Jane Austen can teach us as human beings. Super excited about that. Where can people find the podcast, Jane and Jesus? Well, they can easily find it on Twitter, Jane and Jesus, and sign up through that link to be on the email list to get updates about episodes and seasons. It's it's very easy to find. Super excited about that. And also, I don't know what you will share with us. You made like this cryptic Instagram post that I saw about the new book that you're working on and how you're blown away in the research. What can you tell us about the book that you're working on? Mm -hmm. Well, the working title is The Evangelical Imagination. And what I really mean by that, I'm not really talking about, you know, our favorite Christian writers. What I'm talking about is how the evangelical imagination, like any human imagination, is formed by metaphors and ideas just like we've been talking about today, like, like social media influences us to think that life must look a certain mm. way. Well, evangelicalism has been informed by certain ideas and ideals. Some of them are from the Bible. And guess what? Some of them are from the culture. Mm. And so I'm talking about just how evangelicalism for its 300 years of existence has been shaped by metaphors and ideas 
from the Bible, but also from culture and art and literature and helping I hope helping readers sort out, you know, well, which parts are of what we believe and hold to and hold up as ideals are truly biblical and truly Christian and which ones maybe come from the culture. Just really quickly, because I've heard you talk about this before. What does your book process look like? Your writing process? I want people to know because it kind of fits with our conversation about the work. What is your writing process? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I constantly, it's almost like a, a mantra that I tell myself because, it's, you know, writing a book is very hard and very angst inducing. I tell myself, trust the process, trust the process, trust the process, because the process is very messy for me. The kinds of books that I write because they're drawn from real life observations, but I'm still, you know, I'm an academic. So I'm still drawing from writers and philosophers and kind of building a foundation for what I want to say. And so I have to do a lot of research and I have to take a lot of notes. And so I do a lot of reading and I take a lot of notes and that's where the angst comes in because I'm not, you know, I'm not doing the word count. I'm not putting the words on the page. For me, mm. the process looks like accumulating a lot of raw material, putting it all together and then whittling it and kind of refining it. So I have a big mass of words and ideas and I start to make the connections. And that part is really, really hard for me. The part I love is like after the first draft is done, which is like 90% of the way through, and then I can polish and finesse and edit and find the right word. And that's the part that I love, but that's only like 10%. <laughs> I have this big mass of stuff that I don't even know if it connects and a lot of it doesn't right? But I want to be well informed on the topic. Is that an academic trait? Do you have a better network than I do? Do you know other writers who just sit down and start writing? I think there are writers who do that. I think those are more like, you know, books that are like Christian living or influencer books. I think they just share their ideas. And I, you know, I, I think that's a huge genre. And then there are writers that, you know, that are drawing from other sources. And I think the writing that I do is in between like scholarly writing and just sort of winging it, writing, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, uh, yeah, I, there are different kinds of books. So that means there are different kinds of writing processes. Right, right. Yeah. I probably have a hundred or two hundred books that I'm drawing from for this book, but I mean I won't be using them all. Yeah, but it's a lot of research. That is a lot of. In how many years does it take you? Um, I've been the idea for this book. I first proposed it to my editor in 2018, but then I I was working on my edited classics, and so it's just it is drawn from my teaching. So it's been in my mind for a long time. I gave myself a year to write it, but I've been thinking about it and writing a proposal for much longer than that. So just as a backdrop to this whole conversation, when Karen says do the work, <laughs> she lives it. She's not just saying something to you that she doesn't do herself. Okay. I have this new thing this season where I ask people online, if they could sit down with you, what would they ask you? And TEJ Design says, I really wanted to know this one. That's why I stole this one. She says, has she ever considered writing fiction? Well, my thesis as a college senior majoring in English was a collection of short stories. And I do love the short story form. And someday I might try to write some, but I, I will have to be in a different kind of zone headspace to do that, I think, because that kind of creative work takes, you know, it just takes a different kind of uh, life than what I have right now doing a lot of academic stuff. 
So maybe. So the answer is maybe. I would love to see a fiction book from you. I think it would be really well done. I would love to see it. Okay, Caitlin Chess asked, I want to know how she thinks about writing and online reception. I have struggled to not over caveat when I'm writing now that I've grown accustomed to constant feedback. How do we be clear, but also not let the potential of negative feedback shape what we're trying to communicate? That is such a good and hard question. And it's actually something that I have to think about all the time. And the short answer, which I'll expand on a little bit, but the short answer is audience. Because my audience has changed and grown so much in the past few years, I've really had to think about this. When I first got on social media, the only people who followed me were my and real life friends and my students. And so if I wanted to make a joke about something that we'd talked about in class that they would get and or, you know, just people who know me know how to take me. I mean, that's how I engaged on social media for years. Right. And then all of a sudden, I've got tens of thousands of followers who not only don't know me, but also think I represent them in our church denomination. And so for me to make some snarky thing that people who know me would know how to take is a disaster for me mm -hmm. because of the people who don't. So on social media, I don't know how to get away from the caveats, right? And kind of knowing because the audience is so diverse. So I understand exactly what Caitlin is saying there. The other thing I will say, though, is that most of the people who critique and I'll just use the word critique, whether it's, you know, nicely or not on social media, don't read books. They don't even read articles. So I have right, found right. people who, yeah, I have found that people who think they know what I believe and they know what I've said People who think that they know what I said in an article haven't even read the article. I have found that it's taken me a long time to realize that. So I feel like I can write books and write articles and for the audience I know will read them. And I know the people who are critiquing me won't read them. And so I have to, you know, speak to them in a different way than I would on social media. So it's really just who are you writing for and who is going to be the people reading, whether it, that it's a tweet or an article or a book, who's going to be reading it. So you would say, think a lot about the negative reception for social media. And then in your books mm -hmm. or a longer form, you have the space to fully flesh right. out. Right. No, what, people aren't going to read a book or even an article, sadly, <laughs> unless they want to know what you have to say. That's good. And so you can write differently for those people because they want to hear what you have to say. Jay with the pen says, I'd love to know her thoughts on the future of writing. It seems like in the digital age, everyone has something to say and many people use routes such as self-publishing to get a book out there. Do you think this has weakened the quality of writing compared to other generations? You know, I think about this a lot too, because I agree, it seems like everyone's writing, everyone's publishing, anyone can publish. But again, my, my, Education and history tells a little bit of a different story. In the 17th century, you know, after the Protestant Reformation, when printing was more widely available and people were more generally literate, there were tons and tons and tons of pamphlets, pamphlets written on doctrinal divisions, on education, on all kinds of things, pamphlets that no longer exist or only one copy exists. I mean, it was a flood of pamphlets. And no one even knows them anymore if they do exist. They're, you know, in the archives and university libraries. And so we're in a similar situation. We, we have so much that's being written, but in, in time, 
only those that, you know, pass the test of time for whatever reason mm. will, will be remembered. And that's humbling, but it's also something we ought to think about to know that what is the purpose in our words? And this is why I haven't written fiction in part, because I, I really don't think that I would be that good at it. Maybe I would be okay, but I would have to put years of practice into it that I don't probably have left. And so I feel, you know, I know that my calling, it's not even necessarily my desire, but my calling because I would have liked to do other things. My calling is to speak to the church today, to speak to people today and try to influence them, which very seldom is writing that is geared for this moment, whatever the moment might be, the kind that will last into perpetuity. Those usually aren't the same. Mm. And so some of us just have to choose which one or be called to one or the other. Hannah Moore, whom I wrote a biography about, was one of those writers. She was hugely influential in her time. She really, really had an effect on people. Now she's basically, you know, almost unreadable. And that's mm -hmm. okay because she had a calling and she'd made a difference and she used her gift that way. And some people are going to write things that are just beautiful and artistic and people hundreds of years from now will, will want to read. But that's not most of us. Karen Swallow Pryor is the author of On Reading Well. She is also the host of a brand new podcast, Jane and Jesus. Karen, I've been ending every episode with a question. This is called Viral Jesus for a Reason. Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is today? I think we best communicate it by embodying all that he taught and all that he said in our own lives, both in person and online. And that's the hardest thing, but that's the only thing we can do. Thanks, Karen Swallow Pryor, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. So if you feel called to something, and remember, Karen says a calling comes from the outside. We confirm it internally, but it happens externally. My advice for you this week is, and you can do this right now, I want you to write it down. Just writing it down, writing down whatever that thing is, whatever the goal is, brings you 33% closer to reaching it. What do you want out of your life? What do you want to do creatively or professionally or spiritually? Write it down, put pen to paper and see a physical representation of whatever that thing is that you can't get out of your mind. I recommend putting the date next to it as a little memorial stone for you of either how long it took to see this achieved or how quickly God moved since you wrote it down. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson-Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next week, we will talk to filmmaker and author Devon Franklin. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a Viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen. 
so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.